Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Now, it's been a while, but in this episode, we're going to get up close and personal with another one of our editors, Professor Sam Banks. Sam is a recent addition to the team, having joined in late 2020, but he's already made some fantastic contributions to Heredity, including the choice to publish one of his own papers in the journal. In this episode, we have a great chat about his work, career, and passions. First of all, can you please introduce yourself? So, I'm Sam Banks. I'm a professor at Charles Darwin Uni in Darwin in the Northern Territory in Australia. I've found myself as director of our Research Institute for Environment and Livelihoods up here as of this year, but otherwise I've been up in this sunny part of the world for two or three years as a, as a researcher. Well, welcome to the podcast. You're here because you're the newest editor to join the Heredity team, and you've also recently published in the journal. So we thought it would be really good to get you on to find out a bit about you, about your work, how you joined Heredity, and I guess the best place to start is that last one. How did you join the Heredity team? What is it that pulled you in? I'd have to actually say it was a nomination from a good friend and colleague of mine, Paul Sarnix, but I've generally found that any, you know, tip from him is a good one worth following up on. He's been a um, bit of a colleague and mentor over the years and perhaps not coincidentally was also husband of my PhD supervisor, Andrea Taylor. So I think they're kind of Australia's first family of molecular ecology and they've got all these researchers around the country and elsewhere who sort of come out of their various labs. So it was kind of a nice recommendation from a good colleague and it's been a, um, you know, I wouldn't criticise any, any previous journal editing roles that I've had, but it's kind of a nice, refreshing community feel, I have to say, sort of joining in on the Heredity editorial group. So I've, I've enjoyed it. Hmm. Yeah, we, we hear that a lot. It's a, it's a very nice group of people they've been able to gather together. Um, and Paul actually was one of the very first people we featured on the podcast way back in 2018. So it's nice to hear he's still got that good influence. <laughs> and I guess before we get onto your role as an editor here, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about what your own research focuses on. Probably too much. I'm, I'm not very good at saying no to things. In terms of a taxonomic specialization, I'm definitely a mammalogist by preference, although not exclusively. Mm. I think, you know, if you kind of pulled it down to biological questions that I like studying, I'd probably say I'm more of a population biologist than a geneticist, but it's just a bit of a... um. It's a bit of a messy field to study in any other way other than with genetic data. Well, I think so. I'm incredibly biased. I just kind of think that, um, you know, the approach of using spatial genetic data to tease out population histories across the landscape is quite elegant in some ways. So I, I kind of really like the technical aspects of the field of sort of applying genetics to population biology questions. But sorry, getting back to what you actually ask, I, I work on mammals and broadly on conservation biology of Australian threatened species up here in the Northern Territory. We've got a um, really amazing suite of native species in this part of the world, which is a pretty cool place to work. You know, it's 
by and large, you know, by global standards, you call it relatively untouched, but we've got all these declining species for various reasons, left, right and centre. So since being up here for the last few years, it's been sort of quite interesting to take a genetics perspective to sort of understanding processes underpinning declines of, of species in this part of the world and what we can do about it. I also work on crocodiles because it's just what you have to do when you move up to the Northern Territory, obviously, sharks and other things like that. And I guess a lot of people listening might also be thinking of Australia in terms of the wildfires that have sort of recently been ravaging the place. Has that had an impact on the work that you do? Yeah, I, I've, it's been a theme of my work for quite a long time and probably not through any great insight that it was an important area to study. But during my PhD and work I did afterwards, I found myself having these great ideas that you'd want to go out and study in the field and then your study side would get wrecked by a fire. So I'd sort of pack up and move over the other side of the hill to where you could study what's really going on. So it only took about six episodes of that to realise that, hey, maybe this is what is actually is going on. You know, <laughs> That's what we need to focus on. Uh, so I, I, 2014 or so, we've got a, a neat research fellowship scheme in Australia called the Future Fellowship Scheme. Um, and I got a, a fellowship to sort of look broadly at impacts of fires on population biology and, and genetic diversity of species. So that was kind of nice to have a bit of luxury to be able to sort of take time and look into one of those things that sort of, um, I don't know, my perspective on it is that disturbance is one of those things that was really well integrated into the ecological literature, but in terms of population genetics i mean I, I know there's a lot of history of, of population bottlenecks and temporal variation in population sizes in classic population genetics theory but it's not something we really considered in the sort of broader landscape genetics field it's sort of all about spatial patterns and static patterns whereas sort of looking at those sort of temporal dynamics of populations is it's quite interesting and in australia and unfortunately increasingly around the world fire is just one of those really strongly emerging drivers of environmental dynamics so so my own career history on it was sooner or later it was something that you just couldn't ignore um and i think that's happening more and more so these days as well but but quite an interesting area to study too yeah it's an interesting one it was, like i said i sort of jumped into the area with lots of cool ideas about understanding effects of fire and fire regimes so sort of long-term patterns of fire in the landscape on genetic diversity and evolutionary processes but i actually find myself more and more just going right back to basics and there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know about you know when a fire comes through in a landscape how many animals actually survive and where do they go and that sort of really fundamental ecology as well so that's been quite interesting too perfect and i guess one thing that i'm always really curious about is why the research that a scientist does is important to them so why is the research that you do important to you what is it that really got you into biological research and population genetics you probably stumped me on that one. <laughs> Look, I have to say, when I came out of my undergrad at uni, I really enjoyed genetics and I really enjoyed conservation biology. And I actually, from the, you know, the papers I started reading on molecular ecology, kind of at a time when just after it had really started emerging in the sort of mid to late 1990s as a a valid way you could actually study wildlife and natural populations. I just actually thought it was really cool. And I still find myself being a little bit of an evangelist for 
application of genetics broadly in wildlife ecology. And I think we've by and large got past that phase of, oh, you're a geneticist and, and you're an ecologist and you're this and that. I think it's sort of well enough integrated into the sort of broader toolbox of, of methods that people use to study sort of problems and questions in science these days. But yeah, I, th- I think it was kind of, you know, it was a bit of a passionate conservation biologist, but I just generally find stuff cool in genetics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's one that I think a lot of people find very relatable. I had a very similar conversation recently where ultimately I enjoy it is the only reason that I could really come up with. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I sometimes find myself veering a little bit away from genetic research just into probably more mainstream or classical ecology and conservation biology and then sort of take a look back at the things we do with genetic data and just sort of think that's awesome and just sort of dive back in headlong (laughs) and sort of catch up on things that you haven't really been looking at for the last year or so in the literature. So I kind of drift a little bit, but tend to come back to that way of looking at things and doing things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yeah, sounds good. And I guess talking about the literature, you recently published a paper in Heredity. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about what that paper was on. Yeah, so the paper was led by a postdoc of mine, Branson Tackett. She's a, one of those people who did a PhD with me and then a postdoc and just one of those early career people that just turns into one of your best ever collaborators. He's been fantastic. Um, so the paper was on the fairly descriptively named brush-tailed rabbit rat, (laughs) um, which is a little native rodent that's endemic to northern Australia, dens in trees and hops around eating things on the ground, as small rodents do. It used to be a fairly widespread species and is now really restricted to offshore islands and one or two remnant populations on mainland Australia. And it's in a bit of a dire predicament, but it's kind of representative of what's happened to sort of small to medium mammals across northern Australia right across the board. Like I sort of mentioned earlier, it's sort of from some perspectives, it's this really untouched landscape. There's relatively little of the natural environment that's been cleared in a classical sense. But over the last 20 or 30 years, we've documented this really drastic loss of species and crashes in populations right across northern Australia. And there's a few, you know... (laughs) It's a bit of a conundrum, like it's sort of associated with 
increasingly frequent fire, how that interacts with new predators like feral cats, perhaps overgrazing of some areas. So there's lots of interesting sort of broader ecological work there, but also the the mammal assemblage is pretty poorly known. There's not a lot of fundamental biology being done on these species and certainly very little genetics other than there's a bit of cool phylogenetic work, more so on reptiles from people like Craig Moritz's research groups and other things rather than the mammals. Mm. And also we, we've got monitoring data for the last 20 or 30 years. But you know, prior to that, we don't really know much about the abundance or longer term population dynamics of these species. So, so starting to collect a bit of genetic data is you know, hopefully really going to tell us a lot more about what's going on up here. So, so I'm rabbiting on a little bit, so no bad intended <laughs> there at all really. Uh, But for this particular one, it's a species that is of high conservation priority, sort of speaking to our territory government um, environmental agencies is one of those priority species that we just need more data on to inform its management. So, So the study was in some ways fairly classical conservation genetics. We'd sort of sampled all of the major remnant populations of the species were simply just trying to understand broad distribution of lineages and, and how genetic diversity remains and is distributed within and among those populations. And it, it was kind of relevant because there's a bit of a perception that a lot of these species are declining on mainland Australia, but, oh, you know, they're still doing all right on some of those offshore islands. So potentially those are useful safe havens. In one sense, they are, but, you know, the biggest two island populations that we've got look like they're a completely different subspecies anyway. And in terms of conservation of genetic diversity, one of the things we were showing was that the populations that harbour the most diversity left in the species, or at least in the mainland subspecies of it, are they're on the mainland and they're sort of quite susceptible to decline and to the, the major threats that are driving the, the crash of these species. So kind of just an interesting way of mapping out from a genetic perspective, kind of what are the conservation priorities for an animal that we really don't know that much about at all. So we've sort of got a, a list of weird and wonderful animals that we've been working through, like the brush-tailed rabbit rat, the black-footed tree rat, the northern quoll and other things there. But it's, it's been one of those ones that it's quite interesting just to start working on a, a suite of animals and a, a region that is a bit of a blank slate, really. It's sort of a bit of pure discovery, not only in terms of the you know, the applied conservation questions, but just understanding the basic biology and biogeography of the region too. So we're kind of chipping away and working out at one species at a time. But yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting set of studies to start working on. Yeah, definitely. And it probably helps that quite a lot of these species are quite charismatic as well. Well, I like to think so as a mammalogist, but other people would just look at them and think they're sort of horrible little rats. But, you know, I can always call back on crocodiles when you want to get in the NT news for a story up here. So True. Um, so it is, it is a really good paper and it has lots of very interesting general messages for conservation biology. But I wonder, moving on to your role as an editor here at Heredity, what is it that you are looking for in a good manuscript when it hits your desk? How can people impress you when they submit a paper? You emailed me this as a potential question before, and I actually find that the things that people write are so diverse and they write them in different ways that I'm not sure there's a recipe at all. But actually, the one thing that Probably the flip side of what is a really good paper, something that irks me a little bit is to come back to the term of recipe, is kind of in some ways a bit of a lack of creativity in papers. I remember once having sending a, a manuscript out that I wrote with Rod Peacol at 
playing in you. He's been a really good collaborator for a long time and, and writing all of the methods and the results sections according to the biological question and why we used every single analysis for that. And one of the reviewers wrote back and said, this is really tedious. Can you just give a list of the, the programs you use to analyze and then just the results numerically in the results section? And I actually like, you know, arrogantly took offense at that and thought, no, it's not just a recipe. You've actually got to justify why you did all of these things. Why was that specific program that you wanted to use actually relevant? And what was the, you know, the p-value or the effect you got out of it? How did that actually inform me about that biological process? So I kind of find that, you know, if you get right down to the, you know, the hypotheses you're asking and the analyses and data you're collecting through your methods and that sort of thing, if people can kind of keep the biological question in focus all the way through, I, I just enjoy reading them so much more. Does, does that make sense as an answer? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so we had a, a podcast a while ago on basically the science of storytelling and how all communication effectively is storytelling and you can make a really, really good scientific paper that's also incredibly enjoyable by treating it like a story that has a sort of very core theme. And you don't have to compromise on the accuracy, but you can you can just write it really nice so it flows really nice and it is really enjoyable to read. Yeah. I think also something else broadly, I really enjoy working in the field of molecular ecology. But if I had a in, in some, you know, this is kind of the whole reason and the definition of the field itself. But a lot of the time, what gets published in that field is is very much defined not so much by what's the next big biological question we have to answer, but you know, hey, what can we do with the latest and greatest data type or you know, analytical approach that's come out there? So. I sometimes find that at least the way things are presented, it's quite easy to lose focus on on the interesting biology or the interesting story underneath them. So occasionally I come across a manuscript where people, you know, are really driven just by a cool question and have that in focus all the way through. And I just find those things so refreshing to read. I don't mind a bit of natural history in a manuscript too, to be honest. It doesn't have to be so generic and dry. Um, <laughs> so, and I, I know we kind of, a lot of the time, drill into our students and postdocs that you kind of have to internationalize your story a little bit and, you know, when you're writing things, but it can make things a little bit tedious at times. So, like to hear about the sort of the weird creatures that people work on <laughs> whatever else too i think i think one of the main comments i had during my phd from my main supervisor was that i was too methodological when i was writing and i think it's basically the same point you're trying to make where it's important to have those technical details but you also need to make sure you're really getting across the sort of key messages in the broad scope of the system that you're working on yeah yeah i think so too mind you i'm probably not remotely consistent in that advice to any of you either i'll tell them something totally different tomorrow it sounds good at the moment though yeah <laughs> i think it might be reassuring for people listening though that so long as they're writing a really engaging paper you're not terribly fussed about the exact style they pick just so long as they're really showcasing their system yeah 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 I'd, I'd agree i mean so i only have one last question and it's always a little bit left field and that's the part of the reason for doing this series is to really get to know what our editors care about so i wonder if there's anything in research culture that you're particularly keen to advocate for um i've probably changed my perspective on this a little bit so for a bit over a decade before moving up to Darwin, I was at the Australian National University in Canberra, which 
by Australian standards, some people may argue that that's about top of the heap in terms of classic academia, whereas Darwin is a very different context for academia. It's a much smaller place. You know, there's a much stronger development focus on Northern Australia, but we don't have, you know, it's a a little bit more kind of frontier and feel in some regards. And I think the university here, we've got just, just the one university based in Darwin, kind of has a really a really important role in the place. So I sort of find that there's, in some ways, because it's a relatively small community, there's a very strong Indigenous population in Northern Australia that own and manage a lot of our land. And, and the work we do up here is is very strongly engaged with a lot of local, you know, landowners, land management agencies and Indigenous land managers. So in some ways, it's learning to almost make the work that you do and the university that you work in accessible as a resource to those people around you and the broader community. And I sort of find that particularly important in sort of smaller and at least by Australian standards, somewhat developing parts of the world too. I kind of think it really kind of pushes you out of that classic academia mentality. So there's sort of a bit of a feeling that you do have a quite an important role in the development of a place, but people don't necessarily always, you know, understand what a university and what academia and what research can do for them. So it, it's been kind of interesting and a really good opportunity to get out around the Northern Territory and sort of talk about all these cool things that we can do for land management, species conservation, and, you know, developing new and managing new fisheries opportunities and things like that, and why research and why education in academia is something that's available to you and is really important and sort of having that two-way conversation to sort of um, get people to engage with what you do as a scientist. So uh, something that has sort of really become apparent to me over the last couple of years, living in quite a different, at least part of the country than, than I've been used to. Yeah, that that's a very good message. I think it's kind of that sort of classic ivory tower style discourse where it's very easy to forget that you're surrounded by tons of local communities that you can really engage with and that your work can have a real engagement with. It's just that we need to reach out. Yeah, yeah. I think we're getting there. It's probably a bit of a challenge for academia everywhere though, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Well, this has been brilliant and there's some really, really interesting things that you've said. And yeah, hopefully people will sort of take it on board. They'll think a bit about their research. They'll go and read your paper and they will submit some papers to you to edit Heredity. And yeah, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Cool. Thanks, James. Pleasure. Thanks to Sam. If he's inspired you to submit a paper to Heredity, you can find out how to do so on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 